Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is Courage to Hope. And today we have Bill Hawks is our guest. And Bill is someone that I met at the vigil in Brockton about a week ago. And he has an interesting story. Welcome, Bill. Hey, Tony. How are you doing? Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're welcome. So tell me, Bill, um, let's get a little history. What part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up born and raised in Franklin, Massachusetts. After that, I traveled a little bit, living in Atlanta, lived in Texas for a while, and then made my way back to Massachusetts during COVID. Yeah, people always like to come back to home when things are... (laughs) I get that, you know. So you're a big guy. Did you play sports at at Franklin? I didn't. You know, I always had that part, a feeling of part away from everybody else. So when I went to play sports, I ended up getting kicked off the team because of smoking cigarettes. And uh, they begged me to come back for all three years of high school after that. But uh, I just wouldn't go back because of that resentment of them kicking me off the team originally. Uh-huh. You know, that was the thing back in the day. Of course, uh, today, if they, they knew how big you grew, they probably would pay you to come back. Um, just so you, I, I, you can't see Bill, but he is a big fella. How much do you weigh? I'm six four, three hundred and eighty pounds. Big guy. Yeah, yeah, you are. Your same height is in weight as some of the linemen that play for the New England Patriots. Bill, somewhere along the way, you ended up having a problem with addiction. And could you elaborate on where that started and and how old you were? Yeah, I mean, um, my first drink, I was eleven years old. I think the problem started well before that. Um, I think the problem started with those feelings of less than those feelings of being different than everybody else. Um, you know, and I definitely, I didn't, I had a very tumultuous childhood. You know, my mom was sick with cancer when I was younger. My brother was in a severe car accident, left him brain injured, and they didn't even think he would ever walk again. Um, and you know, I just had a very different childhood than what other children I saw at least had. Um, you know, but now I realize everyone kind of had their own things. But um, the first drink happened at 11. Um, my father passed away at 13. And for some reason, the answer to that was for the doctors to prescribe me four milligrams of Xanax to have a milligram of Xanax four times a day whenever I wasn't feeling happy. Um, I also, at 16, had a back surgery. Um, and the answer to that was to have a vacuum in my back for over six months. And while I had that vacuum in my back, I was still prescribed those Xanax, but I was additionally prescribed Valium and then on top of that, of course, Oxycontin. Um, so it just continued to kind of worsen and worsen due to life circumstances. So the back surgery definitely sounds like that's when you got into the opioids. And how does Xanax and opioids, how do they mix uh, I'm not familiar with how, how they react to each other. Not well. You know, one, one enhances the other, um, and it just leaves you in kind of a stupor state. 
um, you know, that whole time that I had the wound back in my back, I couldn't leave my bed for that whole six months. Uh, and for honestly, a couple months after it, while I was still recuperating, um, I was bedridden, uh, couldn't lift my head off the bed. They had tutors coming in to teach me. The tutors said they were a waste of time because they couldn't even communicate with me. Um, the nurses were saying I was over medicated, you know, it was just, uh, it really intensifies the effect on the other world. Each intensifies the effect on the other. Now, were you at home at this time? In and out of the hospital, yeah. For the most part, I was at home. They had to move the bed, my bedroom from the second floor down to the first floor, and I had to live in the living room. That's because you couldn't go up and down the stairs. Yep. Fortunately, they had a a bed. I mean, a bath. You must have had a bathroom on the first floor. Yeah, it was uh, one of the half baths, just a, a toilet and sink. Um, and I'd, you know, go up and shower every couple of days and it was tough. Yeah. So how did, what happened after that? What is your next move? So then I got off of everything. Um, I just was drinking and I ended up getting a job at a hospital and I ended up getting a job at uh, two different police departments, and I was actually a dispatcher. Um, and that was very successful for a time. Um, and unfortunately, the pain medication, I got injured at the hospital that I was working at. I had a patient. He stood up on the stretcher and jumped uh, right on my back from behind me. My back was towards him. And again, that then needed me to have back uh, issues. So I was put back on pain medication and that just flared right back up to an addiction um, very quickly. And, you know, that was not a very good situation to be in when you're working for two different police departments. So uh, back in those days in 2009, 2010 area, uh, I lost my job pretty quickly and uh, ran and started running into legal trouble. And that's when I finally said enough is enough. And I, I tried easy, every easier, softer way. I tried to uh, use methadone. I tried to use Suboxone. Um, I, I went to a lot of treatment facilities. I went to a lot of spin drives where they'd, I'd go to treatment. They'd take three days. They'd get me on methadone. They'd send me out the door. Um, and none of it worked. None of it was helping me stay sober. Okay, now is this in Massachusetts again? Yep, this is all in Massachusetts. And uh, that's when finally it was like, it's time to go and try something new. Um, my family, somehow, everything lined up again by the grace of God. My family was able to find a program in Georgia that was really world renowned. Um, they sent me to it, and I got my first introduction in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, and I also was, again, chemically separated from everything and introduced to just complete abstinence uh, recovery. Um, and I went there. I spent, I was coming off a very high dosage of methadone, so I spent six weeks in a five-day detox. And then I spent another two weeks in an after uh, a step-down program that I was on medication throughout that for. And uh then I went to a halfway house for a year and a half, and it was a great success for uh, my recovery. And I, I put multiple years together throughout that. So um, you said you were on high amounts of methadone. Mm -hmm. um, 
What what did you call a high amount of methadone? So I was up at uh, the end there at 375, 380 milligrams. Um, this was before they had put caps on the restrictions. Um, and believe it or not, there was actually a girl that was 125 pounds soaking wet. She was on 575 uh, milligrams on a split dose, they call it. So she would take half a dose in the morning, half a dose in the evening. Um and it back in the day, they would just they put you up as high as your body could tolerate and as high as you were willing to go. Well, I I mentioned this. My my son died, and he died of an acute overdose of methadone, and mm-hmm. he was only on one twenty five. But they just never reduced it, never weaned him off of it. Sounds like you. They put on a huge amount. And did they, they calculate that on body size or did they just feel that you were in such an addictive state that you needed to have more? It, it was the body size and it was my amount of complaining and my amount of med seeking. You know, I, I won't, I will say, you know, I was med seeking. I would go in there and say, Oh, I'm still sick. I'm still sick. You know, I was long gone from being still sick. Um, I was just somehow looking for like that relief of myself. Um, I will say this too. I got, I, I stopped opiates before fentanyl came out. Um, thank God, because I don't know if I'd be around today with the, the fentanyl, the opiates that are out there on the streets. Um, but the only thing that I ever had an overdose from was methadone. The only overdose I've ever had, the two of them were both attributed to methadone. Um, one time I, I, when I had gotten my medication and I, I just never woke up and I woke up in the ICU three days later, I had spent 16 days in the intensive care unit. Um, both of my overdoses were attributed to methadone. And that's where a lot of people don't understand that. They think it's the, you know, like it's medically assisted treatment, you know, but methadone is supposed to only be a bridge to get to sobriety. And just to get you off the street from buying fentanyl or buying heroin, and um, and and if they if you keep on it, it's just as you said, you you overdosed on it, you know. Which, um, and when you overdosed on on methadone, they same same scenario. Did they use Narcan to bring you back? Or, uh, yep, they did. They did use Narcan. Um, you know and. I've seen people be successful with it for long terms. I've seen people um, mismanage it. You know, it all depends on that person's kind of strategy and game plan, I guess. Um, but for me, it, it did not, it was not a successful thing for me. You know, um, I, I just med seek throughout the whole time on it, wanting higher and higher doses. So did you go to a methadone clinic like in the morning? And how do, you, how do you how do you convince them to give you a three hundred and seventy five milligrams? I mean, that seems like um, it's all li- then, liquid, right? They give it to you in the thimble. Yep. At the point then, I was uh, four hundred and fifty pounds ish, um, and I was I was sick. I just was probably I don't know what I was sick from, you know, um, and. 
So I, I was just going in every day saying, you know, a series of questions. Um, are you sleeping at night? How are you? Do you have restless legs? Do you have this? Do you have that? And I would sit there and, you know, just answer them all in a way that would make me appear that I was still going through withdrawal scale. Um, and it took them a while to build me up. It's not like they just went from zero to that, but I think they um, they went from 30 and then pretty quickly to 100 and then pretty quickly to 150. And uh, they just kept increasing, like I said, pretty quickly, but uh, within the course of, I'd say, a year, year and a half, I had gotten to that dose. And um, for those that aren't familiar with the methadone clinic, did you go every day? Yep, I went every day. I never got to the point of being able to get take-homes because I was still always using another substance, whether it be cocaine, whether it be, um, you know, a, a benzo. Very rarely, I did still have my prescription of benzos, that Xanax prescription. I carried that for a long part of my life um, on and off. And uh, so I never got to the point where I could have the take-home doses. So how do we get into from from all of this to sobriety? How did that happen? So I like I said, I went to Atlanta, um, got chemically separated from everything. My family put up some really healthy boundaries. And what was really cool about this treatment center that I went to is they flew my mom down. They flew my sisters down and they they let them go to my groups in the morning. And then they let them go to their own groups in the afternoon. So in the morning, they, they were in the same groups I was in. They were seeing what me and my peers were going through in this recovery journey. And in the afternoon, they were sitting there and they were getting introduced to um, coping mechanisms for themselves. And then at night, they were going to Al-Anon. They were going to Narcan. They were going to learn the cope and stuff like that. So it, it, I thought, oh, my God, my family's going to sit there and they're going to say, oh, my God, you know, baby, baby Bill, we know how to take care of you. We know how to talk to you now. We're going to support you. We're going to give you all the money you need. Oh, yeah, you know, you're, you're freshly sober. We're going to buy you all the new clothes. We'll get you all the new sneakers. No, what it did is it taught them how to finally set healthy boundaries. You know, there was no more money coming in. There was no more hotel stays. There was no more going back to Massachusetts and, and having any options of living anywhere but a sober house in Georgia. Um, you know, there was, it, it was a very, they learned how to set healthy boundaries. That was a huge benefit, I want to say that, to my my disease breaking and me finding lasting recovery. Um in addition to that, like I said, I, I was introduced to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous at this treatment center. Um, and they had step studies. They had, they had every version of the 12 steps coming in. They had um, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, Heroin Anonymous. They even had Emotions Anonymous. Um, so they had a lot, a big repertoire of 12 steps that you were constantly getting introduced to on a nightly basis. You would go to something different. And after getting introduced to that, I ended up getting a sponsor, going to the same sober house as everyone from the detox. So the men and the women, we all went to the same company sober house and we all stayed sober for about a year and a half. But we all did the same stuff together. We'd wake up, we'd go to a meeting together, we'd go to the mall together, we'd, um, you know, we would go to 
the evening meeting, we go grab a bite to eat together. Then we go to an 11 o'clock at night meeting. We'd all go home for curfew. Sometimes we would sneak out after that and, uh, you know, just do stuff as a group together. We just had a lot of fun in recovery. And that was a really great opportunity for me uh, was to just have a huge, solid network of people having fun in recovery. How did you pay for all this? My family helped support some of it and a lot lot of it was insurance you know the insurance paid for the initial uh detox and residential stay and then i was working we had to work and stuff like that at the sober house um but the family did help support just the sober living aspect so that was my first run-in with recovery after that um i went and kind of left Georgia and I went and got married in Texas, was still sober, had uh, two children and did very well for myself in corporate America. I had jobs. Um, I actually worked for Google. I worked for NRG, a couple other Fortune 100 companies. um, And that was all while being sober. And unfortunately, I had uh, a slip after the birth of my second daughter. I went back to that treatment center, got on my feet very quickly, and then went back to work. Um, but when COVID happened, I had kind of had, it was like a perfect storm of stuff going on. Um, there was some issues in my marriage. I had just had a false, a false diagnosis of cancer in my lungs. They had found a bunch of uh, masses in my lungs that weren't actually not there they found them and then they went away after a couple months so they think it was some sort of false positive um but for a while i was convinced i had lung cancer there was issues in my marriage and then covid had started um so i got put back on the benzodiazepines for the anxiety over the lungs which then led me to go back to another substance and uh drinking and within probably a month I was back to where I had been before ever being sober, you know, and it was just so quickly. I went right back to that same spot. Um, And that's when I ended up going through a whole divorce, moving back up to Massachusetts um, and really getting to where I am today. And this recovery has been so much different than any other recovery I've been in so far. So you're, you're, you come back to Massachusetts, and now I assume it's 2021 or something? I came back, yeah, right in uh, 2020, uh, right February 2020, March of 2020, that area. And uh, I went through treatment up here a couple times, and I ended up going through to uh, where I work for now. And they had an amazing big buck program again. They had a licensed mental health clinician, and they also had a big book study guide. And all they did was teach the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, Not all they did, but one of the big things they did for me was teaching the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they had the licensed mental health clinician sit down and break down barriers. Like if you had an issue with the word God, if you had an issue with any part of the big book, he would sit down with you for multiple hours a day and just go over it with you until that that barrier was relieved. And that was a huge, again, 
asset because that's the part that has always gotten me sober and kept me sober. So I got that in treatment in the first 90 days, in the first 30 days, really. And then I went to, I just took every suggestion and I finally was completely malleable this time. I was completely open to every single suggestion. They said, we want you to go to, from detox to uh, CSS. I went to CSS. They said, we want you to go from CSS to a residential program. I went to the North Cottage program. They said, you, we want you to wait because you can't get in the North Cottage program. So I had to go to a TSS. So I spent three you, months. Can you explain what a CSS is? Yeah. So I went from detox the next step is uh, what they call a CSS. It's a crisis stabilization services. So it's a, it's a two-week to four-week program where you get a little bit more help. It's, it's more treatment after the acute detox phase. It's, it's a residential phase where they just, you, they really get you kind of more sober. You know, they get you thinking clear, more clearer. They get you off the detox meds um, and get you a little bit more prepared for the streets and a little bit more prepared for life. So I transitioned from detox to um, the crisis stabilization, um, which is the extra two to four weeks and uh, of treatment. And then I even went to what's considered a TSS, which is transitional services and what they do there that's that's a holding center it's um they hold you there until your next phase is ready so it can be you can go there for a week or you can go there for months um i ended up being held for about three months in a transitional uh service up in weymouth and uh it was just kind of you just it's groundhog day every day you wake up you there's not really, there weren't any really groups during COVID. Um, you eat your three square meals and you kind of play some basketball in the backyard. Um, but it was a good opportunity for me to get those next three months of recovery under my belt while I waited for the bed at the North Cottage to open. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get the bed at the North Cottage and I went to that program, uh, spent my time there, did my three months there. Um, and transitioned out of there, took the next suggestion, which was to go to sober living. I went to sober living. Uh, well, at sober living, I ended up getting a job offer from a treatment center um, and was able to go start working as a recovery aide uh, at a treatment center, which was amazing to me because I've always loved being of service. I've sponsored a lot of men in, uh, before in my lifetime. I've uh, done a lot of different things and I've just always loved to be of service, whether it was working at the hospital as a security guard, whether it was being a dispatcher, whether whatever it is, I've loved to be of service. And by working as a recovery aide, it was finally like put into my life. I was being of service. And that is one of the big components of staying sober, um, recovery, unity, and service. So I finally have one of those trifectas Emolves into my life, um, and just that part of my life uh, every day. So I did that for some time, and I ended up getting doing well there, getting a promotion there. Um, I was working with a sponsor, going through the steps, uh, 
and stayed in sober living. I switched from sober living to another sober living house. And then I started doing more outreach work. So I was working with the unhoused population. I was doing case management for people that were kind of unhoused, indigent, didn't have a lot of finances, helping them get, you know, food stamp cards, helping them just get the bare necessities, um, and also helping them with their recovery at the same time um, at a community health center on Cape Cod. And that was a great experience as well. Um, It really got me passionate about doing outreach and about doing the stuff that I do now today. Um, And while doing that, you know, it it was just still taking those suggestions. It was about that time. I like, I got in the service at the home group. Um, I had continued when working with my sponsor, I completed the steps at that point. Um, You know, just continuing to take all those next suggestions. So I, I, those basic suggestions that they give you in recovery and any other suggestion that came that way, came my way. Well, you've done an awful lot of stuff. Now you work for recovery centers of America now. I do. I'm a treatment advocate for recovery centers of America, which is a a fancy way for just saying that I I help people find the level of treatment that best fits their needs. Uh, No matter what insurance they have, just helping them find, uh, whether it's detox, sober living, whatever they need. How long have you been doing this job? So I've been doing this for a little over a year and a half, coming up on a year and a half right now. At the vigil, you had your own table, so you were listening, talking to people about that wanted to get into recovery. Well, I'm sure you yep. probably had more parents coming up, talking to you about their kid and wanted to know what to do next, that, that sort of thing, right? Yeah, we do work a lot with uh, families. And one thing that we do that's a little different at Recovery Centers America is we do offer free intervention services. So if the family has a child that isn't ready or they don't know if they're ready or not, they can reach out to me and we set up free interventions for the child too. Um, so that it's just like you see on TV, we, we can get a certified interventionist to come out and have the car ready to go and, you know, get them taken care of. I see. And um, this Recovery Centers of America that I see on your card, you have two locations, one in Danvers and one in Westminster. Um, they, um, that is that their main places where they take people? Those are our two uh, main places in Massachusetts, um, Danvers and Westminster. And then we've got another eight locations out of state right now with another one opening up shortly in South Carolina. And are these all privately owned? They are. Okay. And what would, you know, you, you went through a lot, you, you know, going back to the, you call it the big book. Um, is the 12 step program is that is that the key factor in the big book yes absolutely um it, it absolutely is the the big the factor in the big book you know um the meetings are great and the meetings do a lot the fellowship does a lot to keep people sober and some people can stay sober off of just going to meetings and, and doing the fellowship aspect you know, for me, um, I tried that and I kept going back out. I would go to those meetings, I would go to those fellowship events, and I, I would look and I'd see how I was different from everybody else. And I'd leave and I'd go drink. You know, um, it wasn't until I picked up the book and I actually went through the steps um, that 
I finally felt comfortable enough in my own skin that I could sit in those meetings, really digest what was going on. You know, there's a, the main thing that I always try to stress to people is that there is a program of action that goes with Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not just a, um, a su support group meeting. You know, there's a program of action that really goes with it. And how many meetings do you go to a week now? I try and I probably should go to more. I'll be honest. I, I hit three to four a week in person. And then I do a meeting with my sponsor. Um, and then I do uh, one virtual meeting, which is with my sponsorship family. So it works out to about five. But I, I really, I should be going to one every day. It, that's what I, in my personal belief. And that's not for everybody. You know, everyone has different amounts of meetings for them. And now you have a sponsor. Are you sponsoring anybody yourself? I do. I sponsor people. I have a sponsor. My sponsor has a sponsor. And we have a great lineage of people that we can trace back all the way back to uh, the founding days of AA. Um, so we've got a really great, great historical archive, too. Um, but that's really what it's all about. Like I said, that un recovery, unity, and service, that service component's a big part of it. You know, the, the, the big book, the 12 steps and being of service really is what has kept me sober. So if somebody's out there listening to this and let's go at it two different ways. Um, if you, if you don't have insurance and how do you get into a recovery place like the like recovery centers of America, how, how would somebody happen to get into it if they don't have insurance? So if they don't have any insurance at all, um, try to get on mass health, um, at recovery centers of America, we do it except mass health toughs. So if you can get on mass health toughs, we do accept that there. Um, additionally, you know, that's a free, easy way to get on mass health. Um, we do have self-pay options, but I always just say, you know, let's give you on mass health toughs. Let's see if we can get you in the door there. If not, we'll get you in the door with one of our partner facilities. And, you know, I work with a lot of the facilities in Massachusetts. Um, it's not so much that they're a partner facility. They're just, they're my peers, you know, like there's, there's a guy like me doing the same thing for every company out there um, that I know and I can simply text them and find a bed, you know, that's what makes the beauty of being a treatment advocate or being a community outreach representative so appealing is that we have the ability to really network and really be able to make stuff happen for people. And if somebody's listening to you right now, um, do you want to give out your phone number for how they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. If anyone ever needs or even just wants to store it on the chance they might run into somebody, uh, my cell phone number is 774-269-8176. That's good. 774-269. 8176. And as you can see, that Bill has def definitely walked the walk. So um, if you have a relative who's in trouble and you want to get him some help, this is what you need. To, this is a starting point. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bill will help them 
get into it because I'll tell you today, uh, with fentanyl being laced in almost everything from cocaine to marijuana to, um, to fake pills and everything that's out there, uh, it's very dangerous. One pill can kill uh, yeah. if somebody's not familiar with. And I, I can't tell you that in the past four weeks, I've, I've heard about three or four people who have died of uh, an overdose that are right local, right local for me, you know, within two or three towns we've had it. Just and I, I live in Massachusetts in a kind of an upscale area. And the... Um, Fentanyl doesn't care whether you're rich, poor, black, white, Democrat, Republican. Um, you get involved with any kind of drug that contains fentanyl. Your, your risk of serious overdose is pretty high. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in my network alone, I've lost about five or six people in the past two weeks. It's been health. It's an epidemic out there for sure. The past two weeks, you've lost five people? Yeah, it's uh, really tearing through the southeast Massachusetts right now. Oh, and 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 if you're an addict and and you know that fentanyl is this dangerous, but you continue to use, can you kind of explain how the how how the drug takes control? You know, some yeah. people just they think it's a weakness, but I, I know it's not. It's a you. It's, you you physically need the drug. Your physical, your body physically craves the drug. But on top of that, your mind lies to you. You know, your mind tells you that, oh, you've got this tolerance. I mean, I, I've never used fentanyl, but I remember using another substance back in the day, the OxyContin. You know, and I would sit there and say, I'm bulletproof with this stuff. You know, like I, I've done so many of them and I've done it for so long that there's no way I could overdose. But the fact of the matter is, when I stopped and I went back, I could have easily overdosed because my uh, my tolerance tolerance went down, uh, you know, and I easily could have overdosed. The other fact is, too, you know, the mind sitting there saying that, oh, they're they're perfectly measured out pills. They're not. You you know, you could be getting the same supply for six months. And then all of a sudden, the drug dealer cuts it a different way, presses it another way, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden, it's something completely different. It's all of a sudden twice as potent. And that twice as potent will absolutely kill you. Yeah, it, it also seems like the, if you're addicted, the fear of death doesn't seem to be very prevalent. Unfortunately, no. You know, the fear of death sometimes is even welcomed. Yeah, because... Um... I, I had somebody explain to me once, he said that he said that dying isn't hard, but living is what's really hard. And dealing with the addiction problem and everything is was so overwhelming, you know. Um you've had you've had to make several times you've gone you you've gone off of uh, recovery and gone back on and you were able to get off again. And uh, how old are you now? Uh, I'll be thirty-five on Thursday. Okay, I mean you've done a, you've gone through an awful lot at the, and um, you feel you you live like one day at a time. Is that how you 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 cope today? 
Yeah, I absolutely have to. You know, um, my life's absolutely blessed right now, and I absolutely have to just keep the gratitude in here and make sure that I'm grief- grateful for everything that I do have and live live with an attitude of gratitude and live one day at a time. If I do those two things, I'll be all set. Okay. And uh, how about um, housing now? Do you, do you live at the recovery center or do you have, have your own place and stuff? No, I'm lucky. I got. I was living in the recovery world. Um, I do have my own place. I live with my girlfriend and her two kids right now. Um, you know, so everything's going pretty well in that aspect. Um, I lived at the recovery house for over a year. You know, I did my time. Um, so definitely served its purpose for me. And then I ended up getting out and back on my own. Okay. Well, then. I am very Im- impressed at how you've handled it through the whole thing. Um, let's go back to the 12 steps program. There's 12 steps. That means there's some of them that are more important than others. Probably. I mean, they're all important. Which one do you feel that is the turning point step that people really, once they get to it, they, they realize they've arrived to something great. I feel like there's a few of those, you know, I feel like the fourth step is the one that everyone's, scared of and once they get to the fifth step you know they kind of get to take a breath and uh they get to see that they're actually connected with the rest of us you know like they're connected with the rest of the alcoholics and the addicts they're not that different than everybody else you know um up until doing a four a fifth step they think oh my god they're gonna know that i stole this they're gonna know i stole that pill from my mom when she was sick with cancer they're going to know that i stole this out of my grandmother's wallet they're going to and the reality is you're no different than any other alcoholic or addict you know and you find that out in the fifth step so i think that's a big one um once you finish your fourth step and do a fifth step um the next one would be the ninth step and the reason that i say that is because you're finally getting right with the world. You're putting into action and making amends to all the people that you've harmed. And in my experience, it's making direct amends. It's going up to those people face to face and saying, you know, not saying sorry, because I've said sorry for years. It never meant anything. It's saying, you know, hey, I acknowledge that this is what I did. How do I make it right? And doing what they say to make it right within reason. Um, and you know, not every person wants to hear that amends, but it's at least me taking that action and offering to make that amends. Um, and the other reason that step's so cool is because it then opens us up to the ninth step promises, um, which is really in my experience, in my every time I've done this program and I've gotten to the ninth step, those ninth step promises have come true. And they've always stayed true until I've stopped working this program. Yeah, it's interesting because I've had a lot of employees that over the years, different people, and I did not know some of them were even involved with addiction problems. And I've had a few call me on the phone and apologize. And one actually admitted that they stole stuff from me and they actually sent me a check for $500 to cover the stuff that they stole. And I, you know, in a big company, I didn't know, I didn't, um, I didn't miss it that much. But to them, that was the important thing, you know, that to, to uh, get that out there and apologize. Um, they did apologize, but they apologized with money, so they were definitely sincere. Um, mm-hmm. That's that's a good one. 
What is the 12th and final step? Is that being a service? And that's, that is a crucial step. You know, like I keep saying, there's those three, three kind of pillars of the program, unity, recovery, and service. And that is it, uh, being a service. Going out and giving back to the community. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's sponsoring another person. It's um, just being a, a service, um, really, you know, take, just giving it back. Okay. And that's why we'd see you at a place like the vigil. They are standing behind the table and helping others to get into rehab. Um, so when, when you, you stayed, you stayed the, to the, um, to the end of the vigil. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, what was your thoughts when you saw the slideshow? The slideshows honestly just always so powerful, you know, and it's, there's so many people that are lost and that we are remembering and it's just tough, um, for the, it, it's just, a, it's a very powerful thing to be able to see. And they, um, do a great job putting that on every year. And, uh, that's one of the things that makes it very, you know, moving, you know, every vigil does stuff a little bit different, but that's one thing that makes uh, the Brockton vigil really moving is their sl- uh, slideshow. Yeah. And for those that aren't familiar with it, they, they show a slideshow when we started and I started coming in um, 2015. And at that time there were 56 pitches of children and men and women that have died of substance use disorder. <clears throat> and and as of last, these are just the people in the greater Brockton, South Shore, kind of Plymouth, Marshfield, Duxbury, Kingston area, um, Easton, going the other direction, the other side of Brockton. Uh, they didn't necessarily die in Brockton. These are people who died in all the communities around Brockton. And as of the last event, which was just a week or so ago, there were 460 people on the slideshow. And that's that's how much that slideshow has grown just in this area, that um, in the Brockton area. And when you look at the pictures, they they, they look just like um, like they they just look like um, everyday people. You know, you would yeah. you would never know that these people hadn't had a problem. Um, they all graduated from high school. They look like the kid that lives next door. You know, it's not some some battered person. You know that you you know uh, like you see in the nineteen fifties movies. It's nothing like that. It's the everyday person. You know that could have been your son, your your, your nephew, your niece, um, the girl that sat next to you in high school, and and there they are on the screen because they've all passed away. Um, it's very, very emotional. And I think it sends a strong message. And it also sends a message that we, we don't, we mustn't forget them. I think that's very important. I think keeping, keeping that out there is, is very critical. Um, mm-hmm. And then this, they had speeches and the speeches by the parents were heart wrenching. Actually, they were very, they're tough to listen to. I, I wasn't too far away from the stage, and I can tell you there was a lot said with those 
speeches. Well, uh, Bill, I want to thank you very much for your for your sharing your story with us. You have quite the story, and I'm really proud to see that you're impressed with you that you're able to fight it. And you, you know, I can I can tell you're a really smart guy. On top of, and you know, you just went in a different direction. You're probably the vice president of Google by now if you if things were different, <laughs> you know, but um, because it does affect you. You said you had, you lived in the corporate world for a short time in Georgia or somewhere. And, and I can see how you could adapt to that quite easily because you, you seem to have good perception. Um, and it's just, and I wish you well as far as staying sober, staying on the path that you're on now and, and helping others. I think we, we need more of you out there to help in others. You definitely understand so uh, again, Bill's phone number is 774-269-8176. 774-269-8176. He is a treatment advocate for Recovery Centers of America. And he was he's absolutely there to help. I want to thank you again. Thanks so much. This is Tony LeGrecker, and this is The Courage to Hope. And you can tell that Bill has the courage and he also brings a lot of hope. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you. Are you mourning the loss of a loved one due to substance use? SADOD.org, support after a death by overdose, is hosting its annual Finding Connections in Grief Conference. Friday, October 20th through Sunday, October 22nd at the Sheraton Framingham Hotel and Conference Center. Join people who are bereaved as they come together to find courage, hope, healing, and community. The Finding Connections in Grief Conference, Friday, October 20th through Sunday, October 22nd at the Sheraton Framingham Hotel and Conference Center. Reserve your spot right now. SADOD.org. That's S-A-D-O-D dot org. Attention, businessmen and women. Do you sell a product or offer a service? Would you like to increase your sales and client base? Would you like to capture the over 50 baby boomer population? Baby boomers control 70% of the wealth and spendable income. And the most cost-efficient way to reach these boomers is with WMEX Radio Sales. Partner with us because we are the only radio station in Boston catering to the baby boomers. The 50 plus market is too important to overlook. Increase your sales and bottom line. Go to wmexsales at gmail.com or call 774-487-8516. For a consultation, go to wmexsales at gmail.com or call 774-487-8516. One six. When you go out for dinner, you really want to head to the spot you know, and your local gem in the city of Presidents is the Fowler House Cafe. Family owned and operated, the Fowler House Cafe is a Quincy landmark serving American cuisine and specialty items every day. Stop by the Fowler House Cafe and enjoy their famous buffalo fingers, game day sandwiches, pastas, steaks, and more. Better yet, try their South Shore bar style pizza now. These crowd pleasers are all homemade and will keep you and your family happy. Trying to catch the game with a few friends 
happens on Saturday, the Fowler House Cafe offers 18 different draft beers, including seasonal options, micro-brews, and handcrafted cocktails ready for game day. To top it off, the Fowler House Cafe has 4K ultra-high-def TVs everywhere, so you'll never miss a play again. The Fowler House Cafe, located at 1049 Hancock Street, right in the heart of Quincy Center. Call 617-773-9000 or go to thefowlerhousecafe.com to place your order today. The Fowler House Cafe, Quincy's Best.